Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Well, welcome to 1966. Yes, we are doing a time warp way back to the 1960s and share some fun facts from that era. It won't all be about cars, but there will be a lot about cars. It's really hard to believe that that is 55 years from 2021. Now, special thanks to my resources, thepeopleshistory.com and the respective automobile magazines that I quote. Now, before we time work back to 1996, I do have a few updates to share. Thank you to those of you who joined us for the live stream event from Sand Hills Motoring Festival this last weekend. It was a ton of fun. You can check out pictures of the really cool cars at the Collector Car Podcast on Instagram. I will post some more. I think my favorite car from that show was a Seattle Coupe kind of French blue with tan interior. Just looked like a spaceship, basically, a I, if I had something to compare, it probably would be a short wheelbase DB4 Aston Martin. Just an absolutely beautiful car. So go to the Collector Car Podcast uh, to see more, as well as Sand Hills Motoring Festival, and please support them and their wonderful show. Now, I will be live streaming on June the 16th at the Cincinnati Concourse d'Elegance, on July the 17th at Keeneland Concourse d'Elegance. September the 19th at the Dayton Concourse d'Elegance, and probably on October the 17th at the Chattanooga Motoring Festival. Now, I am still figuring out this whole live streaming format, and so sometimes it will just be a shot of the show field and cars passing by. Other times it will be me talking about the cars that we're looking at. Other times it might be the MC for the event. You can hear him in the background, and I'll just kind of shut up and let them uh, talk and do all the fun stuff that they do, and I'll try to fill in some of the gaps. So, Bear with me as I try to uh, figure out live streaming at some of these cool events, trying to share them with you because I know not everyone can make all of the shows, and I thought it would be something fun that you can enjoy. Now, you can check out live streaming at the Collector Car Podcast on our Facebook page, Facebook Live, and it will be at RM Sotheby's as well on their Facebook page. Now, some of these events will be at Haggerty uh, at their Facebook page, but just stay tuned to know more about that. And, of course, it will be on the Concor, the respective Concor Facebook page as well. All right, now I want to be sure that there's a call out for any super cool cars that you might be thinking about selling. We have a mega auction coming up at Monterey. If you did not see the announcement, the 1970 Le Mans Golf Blue Porsche 917 is being auctioned off. Legendary car. It's the Mike Halewood David Hobbs car from JW Automotive. 
It's the iconic Gulf Blue with orange racing stripes. Ironically, one of the sister cars was the original logo for this podcast, the number 21 car. It was featured heavily in race footage used by Solar Productions and Steve McQueen's film La Ma, and it has incredible provenance with only three long-term owners since 1974. So go to armsouthofeast.com, check out the video. The video is really well done, really cool. And I've told anyone that I know that has a really cool Porsche, if you were to ever think about selling it, this would be the auction to sell it because all of the Porsche collectors in the world will be looking at this 917. But that also goes for those of you that have cool Shelbys or Ferraris, just special cars that you would like to get into this really high-end special auction. So you can contact me at gstanley at rmsouthabees.com or obviously one of our awesome car specialists at rmsouthabees.com. Now, let's go to 1966, and what I would like to do is put a couple things into perspective. If you've ever been to the Cracker Barrel, you'll know that they have these cool little books that kind of say, hey, here's what happened in the year that you were born. I thought it'd be fun to say, hey, here's some of the stuff that happened back in 1966, along with the car stuff. So some of the things that happened in 1966, including how much did things cost back in 1966? Now, a couple things. The Dow Jones Industrial Average back then was only 785. Compare that to today, that's pretty insane. The average cost of a new house was $14,200. The average income per year was $6,900. Gas was $0.32 a gallon. And the average cost of a new car is $2,650, so $2,650. Ironically, that's about the cost of a new Mustang for 1966. If you don't know, the Mustang initially was a dollar per pound. They weighed about 23, 2400 pounds, and that's how much they cost in dollars. Now, a dishwasher back then was $119.95. I'm not quite sure why that's an interesting bullet point. Or why the Parker Pen Set is also an interesting bullet point. Never heard of the Parker Pen Set before now, but that was $11.95 back in the day. In 1966, one of my favorite shows hit the airwaves. Batman with Adam West debuted on ABC. And then the iconic Star Trek debuted in September of 1966, and that thing is still going fairly strong nowadays. I think they're still making movies. The U.S. population exceeded 195 million folks, and we had about 500,000 troops in Vietnam in 1966. And the Salvation Army celebrated its 100th year, which is really amazing. And then finally, I thought this was interesting. All cigarette packets in the United States in 1966 had to carry the health warning, caution, cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. Now, that's something I just take for granted. I feel like that's been there forever. But obviously, 1965, it was not on cigarette packets, but it was in 1966. Now, some of the cool toys that came out in 1966, which is kind of funny because some of these I played with in the late 70s, Uh, The outdoor trampoline. Now, this is not the big ones we think of nowadays. This is kind of an inflatable trampoline. It was pretty popular back then. It cost $7.88. And then one of the little racetracks, it wasn't the Hot Wheels racetrack, but a racetrack made by Aurora was $39.95. That seemed pretty pricey back then. What was cool, some of the cars that were on this racetrack was a Porsche 906, a Cobra GT. I think that was the Daytona Cobra GT a Ford GT, and a couple race cars. So that's kind of cool to see the period cars on this period track from 1966. Now, some of the other toys, if you were a little girl back in 1966, you might have played with Barbie's Skipper and Pony. 
The play set included Barbie in her outfit, her buddy Skipper in her outfit, and a Palmino pony. Interesting. And then there was a Batman and Robin playset to go with the obvious TV show. Now, this only cost $4.99. Included a Batcave, Batmobile, Batplane, and Gotham City. That is a lot of fun toys for $4.99. A 23-piece Batman and Robin set. Wow. That seems like a pretty good deal. All right, a couple other things. In 1966, there was a selection of board games, which included Life, Sorry, Go For Broke, never heard of that one, Clue, and Risk. I've heard of four of the five, and they were priced from three nineteen to five eighty eight. Bonanza had their horses, uh, little, let's see, it was a wagon, and Haas and Little Joe with two horses for sixteen ninety five for the wagon and five ninety five for Haas and Little Joe. Then obviously we had G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe land vehicles were from $3.79 to $9.99, including a Jeep, a motorcycle with sidecar, helicopter, staff cat, and friction-powered jet to help G.I. Joe on his heroic missions. And then G.I. Joe also had space and underwater models, which was pretty cool. So uh, this is right when we were in the space race and no one had been to the moon yet. So a lot of fun stuff happening there. And then, let's see, Lego construction sets were only $2.99 to $9.99 from 151 pieces to 565 pieces. Imagine that price today. Can't wrap my brain around that. And then, obviously, there was the famous electric hockey game. I remember the electric NFL game, but there was a hockey game as well. Now, some of the things that happened in 1966, this is just a brief overview. The 1966 inflation grew as part of the effect to fund the war in Vietnam And it continued. Both the U.S. and USSR continued in their space race to see who would be the first to land a man on the moon. Race riots continued to increase across cities in America, and National Guards were needed to bring back law and order. The fashions in both America and U.K. came from a small, well-known street in London. Both women and men wore patterned pants and flowered shirts and boots, shoes, and even caps utilized utilized the plastic and vinyl for a wet, shiny look. The most popular groups included the Beach Boys with Pet Sounds, the Rolling Stones with Under My Thumb, and the Beatles with Revolver and Yesterday and Today. All right. That's what was happening in 1966. Now, as you tuned in, you know that my last classic car I owned was a 1966 Mustang Convertible. Love that car. Hope to have another one semi-soon. I'm trying to chase a particular 1966 Fastback at this point. Original owner car. If something happens there, I will let you know. All right, let's look at some of the 0 to 60 times. Now, this is from 0to60.com. I apologize if your favorite car from 1966 is not picked. I basically picked the ones that they had available. Apologies in advance. There's not a lot of GM cars in this list, but stay tuned because there's some interesting cars. The Aston Martin DB6 went 0 to 60 in 8.3 seconds quarter mile was 16.2 now i will have to say in my group here this is the second fastest car coming up next the 1966 corvette stingray 427 convertible that went zero to 60 in 5.6 seconds quarter mile in 13.4 the ferrari 275 gts spider which i think that's the nart spider that went zero to 60 in 7.2 quarter mile 15.7 the lamborghini 400 gt was just a hair slower at 7.5, 0 to 60, a hair faster in a quarter mile at 15.5. The Oldsmobile Tornado, 0 to 60, it's 9.4, quarter mile in 17 seconds. 
Now, for some reason, a 9.11 wasn't listed, but a 9.12 was. 0 to 60 in 11.6, quarter mile in 18.1. And then we're going to finish up with two Shelbys and a Volvo. So stay tuned for the Volvo. A 1966 Shelby GT350 Mustang, 0 to 60 in 6.9 seconds, quarter mile in 15.1. That's very respectable for the time frame. The AC Cobra 427, this is very respectable, 0 to 60 in 4.9 seconds, quarter mile in 13.3. And then the poor Volvo 112S sedan, 0 to 60 in 15.8, quarter mile in 20.6. So that went 0 to 60 in more time than it took the Shelby Cobra to do the quarter mile. All right, what do we have next here? All right, some new cars in 1966. This is not a comprehensive list, but I thought I'd call out some of the new cars that were new to 1966. The Alfa Romeo Spider, the Audi 80, the Bizzarini Europa, the BMW 2 Series, the Daihatsu Fellow Max, the Dodge Charger B-Bodies were new to 1966, as well as the Ferrari 365, the Fiat 124, the Fiat Dino, the Ford F-Series, the fifth generation, and let's see, the Honda S800 that graduated up from the Honda S600, the Jaguar 420, the Jensen FS, the Jensen Interceptor, and Lamborghini 400 GT, Lamborghini Mura, which was the launch of the very first quote-unquote supercar, Lotus Europa, Maserati Ghibli, let's see, the Nissan Prince Royale, the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, the Oldsmobile Tornado, the Pontiac Executive, I don't know that I've ever seen one of those, the Porsche 906 was new for 66. The Subaru 1000. Here's a big one. The Toyota Corolla was launched in 1966. Uh, we had the Triumph GT6. And then the Vauxhall XVR. And then the Volvo 140 series. So those are some of the new cars that were launched in 1966. Now I would like to cover a couple magazine articles here. I'm not going to read the entire magazine articles. And I actually found the ones that were online were actually somewhat abbreviated. So don't expect everything here. And it might leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. I apologize for that. But some of these were pretty funny. The first one I will talk about is the 1966 Shelby GT350H. H is for the Hertz model. This is Road and Track Road Test. All right, here we go. Cigarette butts in the ashtray of a rental car? Not when we rented a Shelby Mustang GT350H from Hertz. No, sir, we found the cigarette butts in the rear brake scoop. What other rent-a-car outfit can make that claim? One of the technical boys at Shelby once hinted that those distinctive scoops on the flanks of the Cobraized Mustang are more decorative than functional, that the rear brakes don't need any more fresh air except when racing. Apparently, nobody realized that Shelby's ingenious crew had created the world's first external cigarette receptacle. I must say, in all the times I've talked about and read about Shelby Mustangs, I never heard anyone reference the external scoops being cigarette receptacles. That is kind of crazy. Seriously, the alliance between Shelby and Hertz has eliminated the necessity of owning a sports car. Now the enthusiast can have his cake and eat it too. Rates vary according to locale. In the New York area, it was a moderate $17 a day or $70 per week and $0.17 per mile. Hertz wouldn't rent us one when there was snow on the ground said they didn't have snow tires for it. New York has a law that says you get towed off the roads in a snow emergency if you don't have approved snow tires. Interesting. 
Renting a Shelby Mustang is bound to be more ego gratifying than a no-go small bore import or a big slow or a big blowsy sport type American sedan. The GT350 is a real guts sports car with hair on its chest all the way down to its navel. Ugh. Okay. Shelby has contracted to supply Hertz with 1,000 GT350s, designated the GT350H, H for Hertz. Most of these special GT350s will have new high-performance automatic transmission, although a limited number will be available with four-speed manual transmissions for the do-or-die purist. Said purist will have to join the Hertz Sports Car Club, the qualification for membership being a demonstration of your ability to operate a manual gearbox. Hertz then gives you a little card, so the next time you want to rent a stick shift Shelby Mustang, you just flash your smile and your HSSC card. If you have any of those HSSC cards, please shoot me a picture of one. I would love to see that. Now, it does mention the four-speed manual transmissions. Apparently, the first 80 Hertz cars came out that way. And if you caught us in Elkhart last year, you would have seen that one of those sold for like $235,000. So, And it had a replacement block. So it's pretty amazing the demand for those four-speed manual Hertz cars. All right, the next one. I mentioned a couple times before, one of the new cars from 1966 was the Oldsmobile Toronado. Now, this is Motor Trend's 1966 Car of the Year, a Toronado cross-country road test. From the moment we drove out of the gates of GM's Milford, Michigan, proving grounds and headed west, the Toronado was the center of every, the center of attention nearly everywhere we went. We were as interested in trying the car in the varied climate and conditions between Michigan and California as in gathering comments and reactions from people along the way. Details on the car had just been released from the press, but Tornado's wanted to appear in showrooms until some three weeks later. This is interesting. The mere sight of the Tornado had an electric effect upon some motorists we'd overtake or meet. The typical driver would let us pass and pull away a short distance while he'd digest what he'd seen. Then suddenly he'd accelerate, overtake, and seesaw back and forth by us several times while he checked the nameplate, and thoroughly looked us over. After satisfying themselves, most would resume their normal speed, but others would pass, would blast past us and off into the distance. This, perhaps, was some form of one-upmanship. More likely, however, they were trying to restore a shaking confidence in their own cars, which suddenly seemed obsolete. The faults we found in the car were either minor or cropped up only under unusual circumstances. Long-legged drivers who smoked and used the seat belt furnished, won't be long in discovering they can't reach the ashtray. The old standby of sports car drivers, the beanbag ashtray, will have to do. Never heard of a beanbag ashtray, and I'm okay with that. We found that the windscreen wipers on the test car tended to lift over 80 miles per hour, but will stay put until 100 miles per hour when the headlamps are open. Okay, we agree, nothing but an idiot would drive that fast on wet roads. For the sake of the record, our test covered 2,769 miles and used three quarts of oil. The car only had 75 miles on it when we got it, an average 12.3 miles per gallon, with a best of 14.7 miles per gallon recorded at a steady 60 to 65 miles per hour. Can you believe that? Three quarts of oil over 2,700 miles. Amazing. The Tornado's a truly outstanding car, and this first model is highly perfected. We think it's destined to become a classic in its own time, which it definitely has. All right, a few more things. I didn't want this to be all about American cars, so I did go to our friends in Europe at Auto Car, 
and they had their best list of cars for 1966. I just picked four of them. I just wanted to read how they recap these four. The Alfa Romeo Spider, initially known as the Duetto, before the full name fell foul of a confectionery maker, the Spider was decades ahead of its time, and it took years before rivals could ape the Italian's technical spec, twin-cam engine, five-speed transmission, all-wheel disc brakes. Indeed, while outclassed by newer rivals, the Alfa survived well into the 1990s. Its claim of fame, of course, came early on in the car's life, and the 1967 film The Graduate, in which a young Dustin Hoffman swanned around in pulling Dolly Birds as well as much more as a much more mature Mrs. Robinson. Dolly Birds. Pulling Dolly Birds. I don't know what that means. All right. The Triumph GT6, inspired by the, the success of the Le Mans Racing Spitfires, Triumph decided to use the sleek fastback body to create not a road racer, but a stylish, smooth, and swift six-cylinder GT that became the poor man's E-type. And those have been creeping up in price quite a bit recently. So keep your eye out on that one in the marketplace. Called the GT6 rather than the Spitfire GT, the 2000 Saloon standard engine gave this sleek little Spitfire more power than it could handle. As Hasty revised two years later to largely contain its wagging tail testified. Never a big seller, the GT6 was nicely sorted by the time it dropped in 1974, but always overshadowed by MG's BGT launched in 1965. All right, one more. The Lotus Europa, still an object of wonder to many, especially those of us who owned the dinky die, the dinky die case model. The Europa S1 was powered by a Renault 16 engine, had a top speed of 150 miles per hour and virtually nothing in the way of luxuries. Even the seats and side windows were fixed, but potential customers with the 1,700 pounds to spend were more interested in the incredibly lightweight 1,350-pound car. The drag coefficient was 0.29, which made the Europa the most aerodynamically produced car in the world, and the fact that it was the first mid-engineered sports car made for road use when it wasn't falling to pieces by the road, that is. That's a little bit snarky. So, well, that is it from 1966. I hope you enjoyed this time warp. I will have more. We'll go back in time even further. We'll go a little bit closer, maybe in the 70s or even the early 80s. And as always, thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Please share with your friends. And I will talk to all of you next week back in 2021. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.